I want to talk to you today about something very important, and there's a memory scripture that goes along with it, and it, I use that memory scripture to uh, give today's message a title, which is Seek First the Kingdom of God, to seek first the kingdom of God. Of course, the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom of God. And to get into that subject, let's turn to John chapter 3 and read a little bit in here. Starting in verse 1 in John chapter 3, it says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for, only, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So he's coming to Jesus, and he's saying, yeah, you're, you're a great teacher from God, based on what I can see. And uh, Jesus answers him in a somewhat enigmatic way. He wasn't very straightforward, if you, you know, if you think about it, he said, very truly, I'm telling you something, this is an important truth. I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, okay, here's another big truth for you. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the spirit. Nicodemus came to him saying, you know, I see stuff happening. And Jesus says, I want to talk to you about stuff that's beyond what you can see. Why didn't he answer him differently? Why didn't he really kind of like directly address what Nicodemus was getting at? He could have said something like, you know, Nicodemus, you're right. I am from God. And actually, I am God. And technically, the Father and I are, are one. We are together. Together we are God. And we're a family. And you're correct in that I was sent here. Yep. You see, the Father sent me. And you haven't met the Father yet, but I'm here to reveal him to you, uh, to show you what he's like and what he's all about. And as I mentioned before, the Father and I are one. So if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. And I'm only going to say what he would say himself if he were here. So if you hear my words, then you've heard the Father's words. He could have said that, right? But he didn't, did he? Instead, the essence of what he told Nicodemus was, you can't really understand who I am and my purpose because you do not have the spiritual understanding that you can only get through the Holy Spirit. That's kind of what he says to him. And if we look closely at Jesus' words, what he said, uh, we find quite a bit of information packed into a very small space. I think that's true of all scripture, <laughs> is it not? Yes. Uh, there's a lot packed in there. Let's, let's take three things that I'm going to dig out from this particular saying that Jesus gave him, which was very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. He said, flesh and blood cannot see the kingdom of God. He said that flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he said, you have to be reborn, not of flesh, but begotten of the Holy Spirit. And there's some very big concepts uh, that we, we could spend a lot of time talking about. Big concepts like seeing versus perceiving. 
material versus spirit. Entering into or, or realizing, you know, ha seeing it happen or being part of it happening, manifestation, etc. Rebirth through the spirit. But they all revolve around the concept of the kingdom of God. Understanding it, working towards it, and participating in it. So let's ask, what, what does the kingdom of God mean? What is, what is it all about? What does the kingdom of God mean? If we're going to seek it, if we're going to seek first the kingdom of God, it's worth our while to take a little bit of a look at it. So this word kingdom is, in Greek, is basilia. It's where we get basilica, for example. Okay, it's basilia. And it's a noun, an abstract noun, which denotes sovereignty, um, royal power, dominion, etc. Let me give you an example of where it's used, the same word, to talk about something very ungodly. Revelation 17, verse 18 says, and the woman, and this is speaking of Babylon, the great harlot, says the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kingdoms of the earth. Basilia over the kingdoms of the earth. So literally, you know, Basilia over the kingdom, kings of the earth. So we could say that the kingdom of God is the rule of God. The rule of God. Or you could say it is the reign of God. And if you like thought experiments, here's one that I do, which is try using the phrase rule of God when you see kingdom of God. And it's legit. It's a legitimate way. It could have been translated that way. And just doing that little thought experiment or word experiment changes the way you think about what is being said. For example, King George III, we just had July 4th, so you know that's kind of talking about War of Independence. Well, King George, he was the king at that time, right? So the kingdom of George III would have been the British Isles, would have been a bunch of other countries, uh, one of which was the United States. That was part of the kingdom. So it was territory, right? And you think of all the places on the map, you say, oh, that's the kingdom of George III. But you could also say the reign of George III. When you say the reign of George III, you might think about it a little differently. Americans with the July 4th in their buzzing around in their mind might think, well, yeah, George III, taxation without representation. Yeah, that was a big deal, wasn't it? You know, led people to revolt. That's part of the reign of George III. So when we use the word kingdom, and this is just one of those little idiosyncrasies of language, I think kingdom evokes images of, of castles and walls and territories, subjects and so forth. And it gets us thinking in a very physical and very concrete way, which is legit. It's legit. And it's how our flesh and blood minds tend to think. But if we use the phrase rule of God, it allows us to focus on the quality and the nature of what God is doing, what he's up to. Just like changing it with George III from kingdom to reign, he thought, yeah, what did George III do? What was he all about? How did he, how did he rule? So the kingdom of God is very often in our minds equated with the millennium. You know, uh, just this past week, someone said, well, you know, if I die in a fiery car crash, I'll see you in the kingdom. And uh, <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> and, you know, we're thinking, oh, well, that's the time of the resurrection and the, you know, the millennial rule of Christ. And, and, you know, we go to the feast. We've got that on the radar screen now. And when you go to the feast, uh, you, you might encounter phrases like, well, it's a little taste of the kingdom of God. Right? You've heard that phrase before, right? Yeah little taste of the kingdom of God. And we have that in our mind, and it, there's, it's not inappropriate, um, you know, 
we even, I think, sometimes venture over into maybe thinking that they're one and the same thing, you know, that the millennium is the kingdom of God. However, the millennium, if you think about it, it's built right into the name, the millennium comes to an end. It only lasts a thousand years, right? Whereas the rule of God doesn't come to an end, does it? So they can't be the same thing. They're not the same thing. If you think about the rule of God, the truth is that there is no place in the universe and there is no time when God was not or is not or will not be the supreme authority over all things. So the rule of God is big. It's very big. So how does that help us or actually maybe hinder us understanding the present age where we're at right now? You know, because you look around and you think, well, this definitely isn't God's will being done on earth. You know? No, no, no. That's not what we see, is it? So if God's in charge of everything, what's going on here on planet earth? Why is it such a mess? Why are we all so messed up? God allows free will. And he gives us the freedom to choose. And he allows this freedom of will to all his creation in the universe. And so, if there's freedom, there are beings and there are places that will not submit themselves to the rule of God. That's kind of the, what happens with freedom. Some will not submit themselves to the rule of God and they're in a state of rebellion against him and his rule. For example, Satan. For another example, the fallen angels, the demons. For another example, human beings. And by extension, the planet Earth. So Jesus' millennial rule is, is, isn't the beginning of the rule of God. It's not the full extent of God's kingdom either because it's on earth, right? The millennium is an awesome time. We're looking forward to it. We're already, I think, we're kind of gearing ourselves up for the feast and thinking about, the, I know I am because I'm feast coordinator and I've got all these plans to get set. But already, I think some of us are thinking, ah, oh, the feast is just down the road. It's only about, was it three months away? Three months away? Uh, yeah, you know, and it's, it's an awesome time. It, what is the millennium all about? Well, the millennium is a time, a time, when the rebellion against the rule of God, the will of God, over earth, will have run its course. Open rebellion against God comes to an end. It will have served God's greater purpose, which is basically to provide each and every one of us with trials and tests and tribulations and opportunities to overcome. It will have served that purpose and it will be brought to an end. And those who have been rebellious, humanity, Satan, demons, etc., and the place where the rebellion was focused, earth, will be brought into subjection to the rule of God. And the kingdom of God, now don't get the wrong idea that I'm trying to spiritualize away the kingdom of God. No, it's, it's very real and very concrete in application. The application of God's rule on earth as it is in heaven will be very concrete and very real. Go with me to Daniel 7. Daniel 7 and verse 13. Daniel says this, and this is after he's had the vision from God of the four beasts, which talk about the kingdoms and rule of human governments. 
And at the end of this sequence, in verse 13, it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Then before me, uh, sorry, then coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So it doesn't terminate in a thousand years. Uh, Daniel 2 verse 44, and this is the image of the the great golden statue, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, Verse 44 of chapter 2 says, At that time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to other people. And it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself it will endure forever. So that's just a little bit of a you know, kind of an exploration of, well, what do we mean when we say or when we use the phrase kingdom of God? Now, I want to dive into some of the stuff that Jesus said. And the first one I'd like to look at is flesh and blood cannot see the kingdom of God. What might Jesus have been getting at by saying that? Flesh and blood cannot see the kingdom of God. So let's try uh, this experiment of ex- just taking the phrase rule of God in place. And we would say flesh and blood cannot see the rule of God. Well, why can't, why can't flesh see the kingdom of God? The word see, like all words, well, many words, can be used in different ways. Right? When you were, use the word see, you might say, Oh, I see John over there. Or someone might say, do you understand? And you say, I see, I see, I see. So we have this word see, and it also in translation can be done both ways because we sort of equate seeing with believing. It's just how we are. And, uh, you know, it can mean light waves hitting your eyeballs, or it can mean understanding what is going on, perceiving, recognizing, and accepting. So let's talk about the people that are um, alive and in the flesh during the millennium. What about folks like that? Because there will be flesh and blood people during the thousand-year rule of Christ. What about them? Well, they're going to see the kingdom aren't they? They're going to be there, uh, flesh and blood humans. They're going to see the rule of Jesus Christ in action. They will see the holy mountain. They'll see it there. That's the holy mountain. That's where the seat of government is. They'll see the resurrected saints. They'll see swords beaten into plowshares. They'll see all this. But as flesh, they cannot cannot be said to have necessarily understood the kingdom of God or to have entered into the kingdom of God. I mean, they're, they're subject to the rule of God. God rules over them. They're subject to the rule of God. And they'll see the results of it. And if you think about the glimpses that we have of the millennium, well, it actually says that some will accept it willingly and some will not. For example, let me give you just a few examples of the millennium where there's some problems, okay? One, uh, some people are going to have to be forced to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. I think by extension, there are other things God will ask folks to do that they just they won't want to do. And they have to be forced, they have to be sort of corralled into doing the Feast of Tabernacles. Another. Scripture says he will rule with a rod of iron. Meaning he's going to have to be an enforcer. Jesus Christ will have to be an enforcer. And then 
I think one of the most disturbing, if you will, or I don't know, depressing things to think about is that at the end of the millennium, what happens? There's a rebellion. There's a final rebellion of Satan and mankind that marks the end of the thousand year period. So there's, there's issues, right? There are issues. The millennium is going to be a wonderful time and it will be a time of peace and it will be a world filled with the knowledge of the truth and overflowing of the spirit of God. But God is not going to take away freedom of choice. That's just, no. If you think about it, think it through. That's not really a very attractive, appealing way of thinking of reality, thinking of, you know, what it means to be a person, if you will. God doesn't take away freedom of choice. And the choices, though, in the millennial period, the choices in the kingdom of God, if you will, are very different from what we have now. And, you know, hasten the day, because some, some of the things that we're allowed to choose are just, they're awful. The choices will be different. You know, you could... <laughs> Boil it down to saying, you know, your basic choices are, well, you can either submit to the rule of God uh, willingly, or you can submit to the will of God grudgingly, by force, if you will. I mean, the rod of iron might have to smash you like a clay pot, as the scriptures say. But open rebellion will be dealt with swiftly and sternly. It would be a really different world if a crime or an infraction or something like that was dealt with swiftly and sternly. It would be a very different world, but it's not. That's a different subject. Truly seeing and truly understanding or perceiving or accepting and entering into the kingdom of God is still a matter of the spirit and not of the flesh. So let's get into this. Flesh and blood cannot see the kingdom of God. The flesh, and I, my family was teasing me a little bit about uh, my use of the word flesh. And, and they say, you like that word a lot. You use it a lot. And uh, I do, actually. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I've looked into it, and I've, I've thought about you know, other words you could use. And I really think flesh is the word because it is kind of icky, you know what I mean? And it really, I think, hammers home the reality of what it means to be, you know, 96% water and, you know, 4% chemical compounds and, and So flesh, and flesh is probably the best uh, translation of the word sarks in the Greek word, flesh. So there you go, you're stuck with the flesh. Flesh, what is it? Well, the flesh only understands and accepts material things. That's what the flesh is all about. And the flesh says what? What is the flesh all about? What is the flesh's uh, marching orders? Okay, the flesh says, I need to preserve myself. Um, I need to protect myself. I need to provide for myself. I need to reproduce myself. That's what the flesh is all about. And it's designed that way for good purpose. In other words, what the flesh is saying, I'm all about eating, drinking, clothes, houses, and sex. That's what the flesh is all about. Those are its marching orders. Go with me to Matthew 6. And uh, let's read verses 24 through 32. Matthew 6, verse 24 through 32. Don't worry about a thing. Don't you worry about a thing. Therefore, I tell you, these are Jesus' words. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, flesh. <laughs> what you will wear, it is, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes look at the birds of the air they do not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them are you not more valuable than they 
And can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of those. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So these are actually reasonable, normal needs. And God's happy to provide them within boundaries. As you know, we talked about a little bit before. And then verse 33, he says this to close, I think, this concept. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all, you'll get all this stuff. God will take care of you. So how do we get focused on the kingdom of God and its righteousness? If that's our marching orders, how do we do that? That'd be a good thing to know. Matthew 16. Verse 24. Matthew 16, verse 24 and 26. Again, Jesus' teaching here says this. Whoever wants to be my disciple, if you want to follow me in the way, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will find it. You and I have to change our perspective on life in the flesh. And it is a matter of perspective. And he, he uses this word cross and what is, what is a cross? Well, the cross is the thing that puts you to death. That's, that's, it's an instrument of capital punishment. That's what the cross is. That's what it means. It's an instrument of capital punishment. A storos. It's an instrument of capital punishment. And, and you know, then what Jesus does is he takes this and he links it to self-denial. Self-denial. That's the cross, if you think about it. This death and self-denial. And he's mixing it together and saying, this is what folks, y'all need to do. Now go to Colossians 2 and verse 12. A little bit more on this. And this puts it more in the um, church setting, I think. It says, having been buried with him, that's Jesus, been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So that death is there in the cross. Storos, the instrument of capital punishment, and the death is there in the baptism as well. Drop down in Colossians to chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, and it goes on to say this Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of its creator. 
So through baptism, you know, like, like the cross that we must carry, through baptism, we, we commit. So baptism is really, I think, all about, not all about, I think a big part of it. Baptism is about making a commitment. And we make a commitment to our own death, if you will. Because there's stuff that we realize we want to put to death. We want to get rid of it. And it, the cross, the self-denial that Jesus linked together with the cross we must bear. And it's something that we engage in subsequent to baptism. But the flesh isn't interested in all that. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's not what the flesh, the flesh does not like this program of action. Uh, it's not interested in, you know, that kind of stuff. What is the flesh interested in? No, it's interested in preserving itself and protecting itself. Not crucifying itself or sacrificing itself for others. And not subjecting its needs to some spirit thingy that it can't even see. can't taste it, it can't touch it, can't feel it. And the flesh, I put it to you, doesn't understand the rule of God. It just doesn't. The flesh doesn't understand the rule of God, and so the flesh doesn't recognize and willingly accept the rule of God. That's not how it's designed, actually. Go to Romans 8, verse 7. A good scripture to meditate on with this in mind. Romans 8 verse 7 says the mind governed by the flesh. The old King James would say the carnal mind. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God and it does not submit to God's law nor can it do so. Now, through the Spirit, you and I have a glimpse of the future. You know, through the Spirit, I've seen the future, what lays ahead. And I've said, huh, I like what I see. The promises of God, all that's out there, I like what I see. This is good. I like it. But my flesh says, wait a minute. Wait a minute, buddy. Flesh says, I'm all you've got, really. I'm it. I'm all you've got. So you need to take care of me. Because I'm real. The rest of it, uh-uh. I'm real. I'm here. Take care of me. Focus on me. So I'm in a battle with my own flesh. You're in a battle with your own flesh, and it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good at all. And it, you know, it brings tension into your life. It brings trials, and it brings frustration into your life. Yet, that is what seeking first the kingdom of God is about. That's what it means. So there's something going on in human beings. And I, I, you know, I, I mentioned flesh, but there's something else going on in human beings. There is a spirit in human beings. There is a spirit in man. If you think logically, in order for there to be this kind of dialogue, internal dialogue between you, if you will, and your flesh, there has to be more to you than the flesh. Otherwise, it would just be the flesh thinking about itself all the time. I must therefore, you must therefore be composed of more than just dust. Atoms, molecules, chemicals, tissues, things like that. You, you, you have to be composed of more than that, and you are. Go to Romans, uh, we're actually in Romans, so go over to chapter 8 and take a look at verse 16. It says the Spirit, and speaking there of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit testifies with 
our spirit. The spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So there's, there's two things. To, I mean, so when I'm talking about, there, you know, when I say there's a spirit in man, I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit of God. There's something else here. There's a spirit in you as a human being. And there's other scriptures I could use, but that's, that's a good one because it puts them both in there. So it isn't God's Holy Spirit that's in you as this spirit component. No, you have your own spirit. And it is by this spiritual part of you that you can be begotten by the Holy Spirit, which is part of the process. And through the Holy Spirit, you can be turned on, you can be tuned in, and you can grow and you can develop into a spiritual life form. To put it in those biological terms that we use nowadays because we think, you know, we're very scientific. Yeah, you can become a spiritual life form. And you can achieve a lot, you know. So seeing the kingdom of God, recognizing it, acknowledging it, and accepting the rule of God, the will of God, and thereby entering into the kingdom of God is a spiritual thing. And participating in the rule of God is a spiritual thing. Now, this spirit that's in you doesn't give you understanding all on its own. The spirit in you is kind of neutral, if you think about it. And it's not your default setting to be spiritually minded, although, even though you have a spirit component within you. It needs to be switched on. It needs to be begotten and made alive by the Holy Spirit. And that's a process that begins with the Father. John 6, says, Jesus says, no one can come to me, no one enters into this process except by the Father who draws him. God has to reach out, and he does, he reaches out, and he basically turns you on. And there's a process of drawing. You know, it's a, you know there's a lot to it. Let me just give you some. I've got here uh, six, six steps. If you like steps, if you like points, this will get you focused. First step is proclamation. Proclamation, as Paul says, how can anyone know the truth if someone doesn't declare it to them? So proclamation, the kingdom must be preached. Then, second, there has to be a willingness to listen. And there's this cycle of faith. I've talked about it in the past where you take what God gives you and then you kind of act on it a little bit and he gives you more and then it kind of grows like a snowball effect. So there's a willingness to listen, all right? Then there's conviction. There's conviction. You know, and you become convicted before you become baptized. So there's conviction, which is where you reach a point where you say, you know, I need to act on what I'm knowing, what I'm learning. I need to do something about this. Then there's repentance, which says, I need to stop rebelling against God. I got to stop. Then there's baptism, which is committing yourself to the process of spiritual regeneration. I need to begin the process now rather than later, because baptism is a point in time. You say, I got to get started. And then there's the receipt of the Holy Spirit, which gives understanding. Go to Matthew, uh, no, just go to 1 John 2. No, no, Matthew, Matthew 13, verse 11. Matthew 13, verse 11. This is when Jesus is talking to the disciples about understanding, and he's talking about parables. And he says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven kingdom of God, the rule of heaven, has been given to you but not to them. So it doesn't just come by observation. It has to be given. And God's willing to give it. 1 John 2 verse 20. It's kind of 
built into that give and take process, you have to act on the stuff that is made known to you. God gives his spirit to those who obey, those who respond. 1 John 2 verse 20 says, but you, writing to the church here, you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. So that's what you've been given. You've been given the truth. So the other part of what Jesus said, this would be part two. All right. The other part of what Jesus said was that flesh and blood cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So we've talked about seeing the kingdom of God. You know, what does that mean? Do you just see it happening or do you understand it? Are you buying into it? Part two is entering into the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So let's say we do our word experiment on this one and we substitute rule of God. It says uh, then flesh and blood cannot enter into the rule of God, the basilia of God. Oh, that changes the way I think about it. Flesh and blood cannot enter into the reign of God. Hmm. Flesh and blood cannot enter into the sovereignty of God. I think those are all legitimate ways to translate or think about that phrase. And it changes your perspective. Let's talk about the millennium again. So the people in the millennium, when Christ returns, when Christ rules, when the will of God is done on earth, uh, the people in the millennium, they'll be part of the kingdom of God, right? I mean, that's, they're going to be part of the kingdom of God. They'll be subject to the rule of God on earth. But as flesh and blood human beings, they're really subject to the rule of God, but they don't really enter into the rule of God. That's something a little different. Let me explain why I say that's something different. Because entering into the rule of God, kingdom of God, means entering into God's family. Entering into the rule of God is entering into God's family, which does all the ruling. So Jesus said to Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. But you, me, we were begotten by your flesh and blood father, and you were born into his family. You bear his name, like it or not, until you start your own family, of course. You bear his name, and you're part of his family with a flesh and blood body, just like your father, right? You bear some of the traces of your father and your mother. You know, oh, you look like your dad. If you are begotten by your spiritual father, if you're begotten by your spiritual father, you will be born into his family. And you will be spirit. Just like God your father. Just as you were flesh, like your flesh and blood father. And that is how you may enter into the rule of God, the kingdom of God, the will of God on earth, by entering into the family, the ruling family. And once again, it's a process. It's a process that begins with the Father. You're born of water and spirit. We kind of looked at that in Colossians 2, so we don't need to go there again. You're begotten by God the Father. We started off right there in John chapter 3, verse 6. Then you grow. You grow as his children through instruction. That's a new one, so let's go to 1 Peter 2, verse 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 2, which says, Like newborn babies crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. This growth 
is growing according to the pattern of Christ. So let's go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 13 through 15. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. So that's the pattern, Christ. We grow into Christ. Let's read the next verse too. It says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Another thing, part of this process, building the mind and character of God, the way you think, the quality, if you will, happens until we are finally accepted into the family as adult children with full inheritance rights. Let's go to Romans 8 and start in verse 13. And I'd like to read through verse 23. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. And the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. I like, I like the use of the word sonship in there. It really, to me, makes this, the sense of it. Adoption to sonship. In the Roman way of thinking, uh, you could adopt a son who is not of your own body into your family and he would get inheritance rights. But you also went through this same process with your own flesh and blood son. There was a ceremony where he would be given full inheritance rights. When we're talking about God, that's what we're talking about. You're a full-fledged son, begotten of the Spirit, and you are brought into the fullness of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, and the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope, in expectation of something better, good, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, being brought into the fullness of our position in the family. Heir. That's what it means. We are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. What do we inherit? The family business. <laughs> we get to be part of the family business, which is ruling. The God family is in the business of ruling. Now, our inheritance rights include a couple of things. I think this is not an exhaustive list, but our inheritance rights include being changed into spirit like him in substance as well as in character. That's a big deal. We, we read Romans 8, verse 23. Let's take a look at 1 John 3, um, verses 1 through 2. Great scripture. What scripture isn't great? 
First John 3 verse 1 through 2 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. You will be like God your Father. And you'll see him as he is. You will see the kingdom of God. You'll perceive it. You will enter into it. Other part of our rights of sonship, what we get when we're made an heir, is the inheritance. We enter into the family business, which is ruling. Ruling. So we enter into the kingdom of God. Now look, let me use a, let me use a flesh and blood example, <laughs> since we like that word so much. If your family business was carpet cleaning, and you wanted to bring your children into the business, you would train them in cleaning carpets. Right? You might add some extra stuff. You know, you might want them to learn about bookkeeping and all that. But you, fundamentally, you want to teach them about cleaning carpets. Son, daughter, all this will be yours. You train them. If you were a farmer, you would train your children in farming if you wanted them to inherit the farm. You'd say, this will be yours, and you'd train them in farming. If you were the supreme ruler of the universe, you would train them in ruling because they're going to get an inheritance, a family inheritance. So, let us, you and me, Learn the family business. Let's learn the family business. Learn to rule yourself. Learn to rule over your own flesh. Learn to rule over your spirit. Learn to rule and exercise in whatever authority you are presently given. And that might mean how you administer your family how you deal with your worldly wealth, how you deal with your career. And all of us should have this perspective, that we seek first the kingdom of God, that we're faithful and godly in the little tasks that the Father has given us. He's given to you, he's given to me, his beloved children who are to be heirs together with Christ. So prepare yourself to see and to enter into the kingdom of God.